walking into this. And we were looking at this chapter earlier on and just focusing on the things that, that God provides for us and the blessings that come. And I remembered this statement, and I believe it's by Lewis, and I've mentioned it before, but he said this, Once people stop believing in God, the problem is not that they will believe in nothing. Rather, the problem is that they will believe anything. I mean, this is how God has made us. Every human being must live for something. We are designed to worship. We're designed to glorify and to praise, but the issue is what is it that we glorify and praise? What is it that we worship? There's got to be something that captures right, our imaginations, right, the fundamental things of our heart, allegiance, hope. Where do we place these things? In Ecclesiastes, Solomon has warned us about the, the promises, the empty promises of possessions and pleasures and power and even profit. And it's interesting that even in this section, as we begin to look at it this morning, but in verse 10, he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might or all your might as it's rendered here. So we might make some assumptions based on that, that somehow we can determine what's going to happen in our life, the profit that comes from our labor. But Solomon is going to challenge our thinking once again, but we're encouraged not to allow the gifts that God gives us to become God alternatives, but we're to gratefully enjoy these gifts. And we're going to remind ourselves of this as we walk through this last part of Ecclesiastes, and Solomon's going to bring it before our eyes, that we need to glorify the giver of these gifts as we enjoy them, right? But we must glorify Him through that enjoyment. If we fail to do that, then we fail to ultimately appreciate what God has given us. In other words, I started thinking for myself that really, I want to be more intentional about being thankful in my life. It's not that I'm, you know, a gripey Gus and I walk around, you know, bemoaning everything in life and grumbling and complaining. Although I may think that I have things to groan and complain about in my life, but I don't go around doing that. But at the same time, I don't know that I'm always so thankful about everything. Like Paul says in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Not sometimes, always. Really? <laughs> or how about 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always, there's that word again, pray continually, ouch, and then give thanks in all circumstances. Not some, all. That would lead me to think, not just the good circumstances, but also the Bad ones, or at least that I deem are bad, right? But usually I judge circumstances based on whether or not they profit me or not. But what if me going through a difficult time profits somebody else? And then I thought, well, why don't I, like the rest of my life, why don't I take this mentality into everything else about life, right? So I'm at the store the other night, and I see the clouds coming. I know it's going to happen, right? You hear the thunder in the distance. You know the storm is going to come. And all of a sudden, I'm staying in Fred Meyer at the pharmacy, and I can just hear the torrential downpour on the roof. And I'm thinking, great, I'm going to get soaked on the way to the car. But I walk out the door, and there's all of these people just standing there, staring at the sky, right? Lightning flashing, thunder rumbling, right? That kind of thing where you feel your bones rattling when it does, right? And the rain is pouring down and everyone is standing in awe of our God. 
And I stopped and said, this is a time to rejoice. But how often do we do that, right? Sunrises, we miss them, don't we? Sometimes we don't stop to look at them. My oldest son, and we were talking the other night for hours, and, and he was sharing about he and his friend, they lived near the beach, and so they're down at the beach. He's rubbing it in. And so they're down at the beach, and it's sunset, right? And he's like, we're looking, and we just, he says, all of a sudden, we're just sort of in awe, Dad, because we realize that not one of these sunsets are the same ever. They're always different. And I said, isn't that amazing? Because when we were in Siberia, you know, I would sit there and we'd have the snow coming down and you could see these massive snowflakes. You could see the patterns on the snowflakes. They were so big and not one of those patterns is exactly the same. And I said, isn't it amazing that from the fall of man, when we first began to have snow, right? And it started to come from that time on, all the snowflakes have been completely different. Isn't that awesome? But how often do I allow these things to pass without thanking God for them and rejoicing in His faithfulness? How about a small answer to prayer when God reminds us that He loves us? Just the little things, right? I mean, we awe over the big things he does in our life, right? When I got to pay the bills and there's not a dime in the bank account. And then all of a sudden he makes that provision and everything is covered. And you're like, hallelujah. But what about the small things that he does? Those little things that tells you that he's mindful of you. This is for you and you only. How about an encouraging word in a discouraging time? Or just the right verse from God when you needed it. A friend of mine in college, he said, man, I, this verse was stuck in my head and I just couldn't remember where to find it. And he goes, I just needed to sit down and read it. But he goes, I, I could remember some of the words, so it's there. He goes, I just couldn't remember where it was. He says, I just got on my knees and prayed. I said, Lord, I need this verse. Would you please help me find it? He says, I sat down at my desk, opened my Bible, and bam, there it was. Now, don't count on God doing that all the time. <laughs> Memorize the scriptures, right? But he does that for us, right? Or how about the simple song of praise to God from the heart, right? I mean, man, when we're all singing, I don't know about you, but I am so moved every Sunday. Because we're just dwelling together in unity and awing over our God and what he does. How about sharing a few dollars with one who really needs them? cares what they do with it. That's between them and God, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. How about the hush of fresh snow at night? See, these are things that oftentimes we might look at them and we, we fail to praise God for them, but we may miss much of life if we don't praise God in the circumstances of life. And especially the ones that aren't going so great. Because no matter our abilities, we don't determine the outcome. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. But verse 11, he says, but don't count on it turning out how you think it's going to turn out. Don't think that you control how it turns out. And when we grumble, aren't we calling into question God's goodness and his providence in our life? Am I saying not to God that he doesn't know better than I do? 
So life is brief. Cherish the joys, but also cherish the sorrows because I learn much in the sorrows. And I find I draw so much closer to my God in those times. In the hand of God, this is the reminder all the way through this chapter, and this is how it begins, chapter 9, verse 1. We saw facing the death and now facing life. And Solomon, he keeps coming back to this thread of thought, which I like. And this is his answer to the enigmas. Enjoy God's provision for you, verse 7. Enjoy everyday occasions, verse 8. And then enjoy companionship, verse 9. And he's dealt with companionship in different aspects. This one, he's dealing with it in the context of marriage. I had a thought about this, and I'm going to lay this on to you, though, just for something to think about, right? Plant the seed, and maybe someone will come along and water it. The age to come isn't only about an improvement over the worst of this world. In other words, Solomon gives us tastes of, of the emptiness of everything under the sun, right? He, he's helping us see that there's more beyond it, right? There's something better than. We have eternity in the heart, right? There's something that screams out for something more. So we understand that the age to come when we enter into God's glory, that there's going to be improvement over the worst things in our life. But what about the good things in our life? In other words, the age to come is an improvement over the best and most wonderful things that this world has to offer. There are majestic moments, but there's even greater moments than that awaiting us in glory then. In other words, God's purpose for us as His children isn't only eternal life that will replace death or righteousness replacing sin or health replacing sickness or joy replacing sorrow or pleasure replacing pain, amen for that, but also the unimaginable, the unending, the ever-increasing ecstasies are going to replace the best and most intense pleasures in this world. God gives us things to enjoy, but there's greater things to enjoy later. Things that we can't even comprehend here. Isn't that mind-blowing? I mean, I'm always thinking about the better over the bad things, but what about the better over the good things? That even those things, the sunsets and all of that, those things that capture our awe, we are going to be in the glory of God. I just know that when I'm in heaven, after I get up off my face, which will probably be there for you know, a thousand years, although we're not in time, so whatever. But I'm then just going to walk around with my just jaw dropped. Right? I'm going to be captured by everything that is going to be around. Final, enjoy your labor. Chapter 9, verse 10. So Solomon, as he moves through this chapter, he moves from death to life. And he sort of gives us a perspective on life. One fate for everybody, no guarantee for tomorrow. And this is how we should live. In other words, if, life, if death is unavoidable and life is unpredictable, then how do we respond to that? And it really is this. Trust God. Walk by faith. Enjoy whatever blessings God gives to us in this life. And trust Him in the good and the bad. In other words, do everything that you're supposed to do, verse 10. Take everything that you see and you put your hand to. Do it with all your might, as he says. But then understand that the outcome belongs to God and leave it there. <laughs> oh, but I have trouble with that. Man, do I have trouble with that. 
Because I expect that my output should bring about what I want in the end. The product. And if that product doesn't come, man, am I upset. <laughs> and then I start to complain. So the exhortation, although he does not use the word specifically, but nonetheless, he is calling us to live by faith, not by sight, because God's approval or displeasure isn't always clearly discernible by the events of our life. Right? I mean, how many times do we think this, that maybe someone is right with God because everything is going right in their life? They're being rewarded by the things that they are doing. Then you start asking yourself, well, why should I bother doing the right things in life? <laughs> in other words, Solomon's going to call us to a confidence of faith. Because from what is visible, it isn't often easy for us to discern whether God's blessing, favor is upon a person, or it's his wrath, right? Because sometimes the roles seem reversed in terms of the conditions of life. You ever seen this in your life? Wicked are prospering. Everything is going well for them. You're striving to do everything that God wants you to do. And it seems like everything is turning out bad for you. This isn't right. It doesn't make sense to me. So I remember this. Uh, I'd say a mother of one of the kids. I was going to call her older woman, but I'm not going to do that. But she was... <laughs> I met her, saw her one day in the grocery store, and so I was asking how her son was doing. I had discipled him for years, and then they moved away, and then she was back in town, her and her husband, and so I, I crossed paths in the store, and I asked her how her son Jeremy was doing. And she went on to say how amazing and great and all this stuff, right, and he's got a great job, and, you know, this nice house and car and all these things, right? And, and the implication she was making was that he was right with God. And therefore, see, he's got all this blessing in his life. So obviously everything's good there, right? But then I ran into some of his friends and I asked him, well, how's he doing spiritually? Not good at all. He's not going to church. He's not fellowshipping with any believers, right? Sometimes we look at someone's life and we see all of this stuff that we look and say, this is good, this is amazing, whatever. And we can draw the conclusion that obviously they're in God's favor. And they're right with God. When in reality, Solomon says, that isn't always going to be the case. Sometimes I can think that when things are going well for me, that obviously I'm doing right with God. But that's not always the case. And it's these times that we ask the question, well, why doesn't God vindicate the righteous in his life? And this is a thought for you that I give. The genuineness of godliness exists when there is no evident outward benefit. In other words, you do what is right simply because it is right, regardless of whether it is acknowledged for doing that which is right. But see, how many times do I expect God to respond in a certain way if I do what's right? I expect profit. I expect gain. When it doesn't come, right? But that's just because I'm only looking at me. I'm not seeing what God is doing in the big picture. I don't see what he's doing in the lives of other people. So Wesley makes this statement, and I love this. Can't improve upon it, so why try? All events which befall them are governed by his providence, and therefore, although we cannot fully understand the reasons of all, 
yet we may be assured they are done righteously. God does everything righteously. There is nothing wrong that God does. He cannot do wrong. God cannot compromise his character. But sometimes I question his character, do I not? Job's response is interesting to me, right? This is after experiencing a number of afflictions with no explanation. (laughs) If we're going to suffer, I want an explanation, God, of why I'm suffering. I want to know why I'm going through this. So I say this to my kids, Dad, why? I don't have to tell you why. (laughs) You just have to do what I tell you to do. I don't have to explain myself. I'm dad, you're child. That's how it works, right? However, I then have to say this to myself when I'm speaking to God. He's father, I'm child. He doesn't have to explain himself to me. But here's what's amazing with Job. He says this in reference to the Lord. He knows what he is doing with me, and when he has tested or tried me, I will come forth as pure gold. But how many times do I question what God is doing with me? Are you sure this is right in my life? (laughs) I don't think I should be going through a difficult time now. But he knows me. He knows me better than I know myself, does he not? And he loves me. And he wants the best for me. And sometimes... I have to go through these things so that I'll learn. So Solomon moves in verse 11. He says, again, I saw this under the sun, that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Now, this might throw us off a little bit, the reference to time and chance. Chance especially, right? Such a, Random word. Circumstantial. Right? Happenstance. In other words, usually when we use the word chance, there's no implication that somebody's in control. It's our way as a a depraved human being. This is how we describe things, right? It's like the universe, right? It's a result of chance. What kind of answer is that? It's like a mathematical word for, I don't know, (laughs) right? (laughs) This is the best we can come up with. So Solomon is going to return to this subject in perspective, and what he does is he helps us to see that this is applicable to everybody because he gives us these extremes. He talks about the righteous, the wicked, and now the wise and the unwise, and he's going to carry this thought on, and therefore he embraces everybody in these statements, and we all experience this, that life is unpredictable from our perspective, but it is not irrational. Because sometimes for us, we sit there and think, life does not make sense to me, (laughs) but it does to God. And we might come off of verse 10 thinking that, okay, I can understand, I have no control over death coming to me, but I have control over life, right? If I work hard, labor hard, do everything, right, to the utmost of my ability, use all that God has availed me to use, right, in my life, talents and so forth, and all of these things that somehow I can dictate the outcome. And Solomon says, don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. 
So he gives us five abilities. The last three, notice with, the, with me, these last three have to do with wisdom. Neither bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability. And actually in Hebrew, the word translated here of ability is yada, to know. Those who know how, therefore, thus uh, the idea of ability. But there are two things that impact these things, time and chance, or the unexpected event. The thing that we weren't planning for. It's okay to make our plans, right? But just know <laughs> there is one plan that overrules everything else. Now, what's interesting is that Solomon, he's going to link this word chance with the word time here, eight. And eighth is used in chapter three, verses one through eight, when he talks about all the various seasons that are in God's control. So this is a God word in Ecclesiastes. So then so is the word chance. In other words, it should never suggest to us the thought of that somehow no one is in control. It's a happenstance. It just occurred, no rhyme, no reason. No one's in control of it. Solomon helps us to understand, yes, there is. Remember, the overriding thought is in the hand of God. So chance here, the word pega, it comes from paga, which means to meet or encounter. This word is only used twice in all the Old Testament. Here in 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 4. And there it's rendered an evil occurrence. Not in the NASB. NASB renders it misfortune. It takes the two words and combines them together and, and translates it mis, or misfortune. But the King James is a little bit closer to the Hebrew because they render it an evil occurrence. It's the only other time this word is used. So this is the same word that he's using here. He's talking about that which isn't like chance, the rolling of a dice, but we also know that this is not something that is merely by chance, that is outside of control of anything. We know that the casting of Lot in a lap, but the, every decision belongs to God. Even the most mundane, simple, random things in our life, we think that no one's in control of these things. I cast the dice and it lands where it lands and no one's in control of that. Not so. God controls even that. Even that. Someone asks, does God really care what happens where, where the dice land? <laughs> Obviously he does, <laughs> right? Obviously he does. So then they go to ask me the question, well, does not God care then about sporting events like which team wins and which team loses? Does it really matter to God? Does he have any kind of hand in that? Or does he just sort of let things play out and he'll see what comes in the end? He doesn't really know. I said, but here's the thing. You're asking the question with a completely limited perspective. You don't see all the people who are watching this one event. You have no idea how this one event and its outcome is going to affect every single one of these people who are watching it in the stadium take. So I said, I'll give you an example. There was a young man in surfing. His whole life was striving towards one particular competition. Pipeline Masters. And he worked his whole life to get to this point so that he could win this contest. He got, got there. Finally, he made it. Gained enough points, gets to the contest, serves the contest. He wins. 
Biggest trophy ever in surfing. He's standing on the stage holding up the trophy and all of a sudden the rain starts pouring down and everyone scatters. This massive moment that his whole life built to, totally anticlimactic. Empty. Right? Does it matter to God whether he wins or loses? Yes, it does. Because that moment in his life, he realized how empty chasing life under the sun is. He is now a pastor in San Diego. So we may not see everything that's happening and the things that come about in our life, but understand God is in control. Even those meetings, those encounters, we don't always know what God's going to do with that. And so we put forth all of this effort. We make our plans. We expect an outcome. It doesn't happen. Something else comes in place. And instead of complaining, just step back and think, God's doing something here. It's not what I plan to see happen, but something's happening. And obviously it's important to God. So understanding this word pega, chance, this meeting or encounter, occurrence, event, unexpected. But we use terms like this all the time or we could express it this way. It just happened to be in the right place at the right time and I got the job. But we know who was in control of all of that so that that point in time you met that moment and you encountered what God wanted you to encounter. So these times and occurrences, they lie beyond our control. But they don't lie beyond God's control. And I must remember this. Right? We know that we as Christians, we don't lean in luck. As my brother's song says, I don't believe in luck. I don't believe in it. We don't champion chance or put confidence in it. It's not our explanation for how the universe came into existence. But our confidence is in a loving, controlling creator. There is not one particle of dust that God does not control. Not one. So, when these moments come in our life, right? I must step back, look at it, and realize God's at work here. And then I have to ask myself, so how should I respond to this? To bring him glory. Our abilities and our opportunities, Solomon helps us to see, they don't guarantee success. Often time and unexpected events will affect the outcome more than the skill or the ability. God's at work so often in our life, and so often we miss this. But part of helping myself to see these moments is just to start thanking Him in the good times and the bad times, and start to acknowledge the fact that He's working in both of those times. Our abilities are no guarantee for success then. So generally, we might assume in verse 11, Solomon says, generally it's true that the fastest runner will win. We understand that, but then there are upsets. I love track and field. Love track and field. My whole life, I, my, my uncle coached at Biola, and most of my aunts and uncles worked there. My dad taught at the seminary, but my uncle coached the track team. He also taught lit. But I used to go to all of their track meets and everything. Just loved watching it. And you see these amazing runners and athletes and all this time they train, 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 right? And they put forth all this effort in a race and then they lose, right? How heartbreaking is that? 
but I have to remind myself that something's happening here, right? There's a reason why this takes place. The strongest soldier, we expect that the most equipped army will win the battle, but this isn't always so. This is the example that he gives us in verses 14 and following, right? There was a small city, a few men, a great king came, surrounded it, and constructed large sage works against it. And then there was found in there a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Great king comes, all this power, all this force, and one wise poor man delivers the city from The best skilled gets the best jobs, but at the same time, these gifted people, they can miserably fail. Circumstances we don't know that are beyond our control. The wise person can know and make the most of time and procedure, but only God can control time and occurrence. These quote-unquote chance events in our life that seem to be out of control, but are very much in control by God. God has a time for everything, Solomon reminds us in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. God has a purpose to be fulfilled in that time, and something beautiful will come from it in the end. Isn't that awesome? Something beautiful will come from the sorrow in your life. And God will be glorified through that. All things are under the government and disposal at God, and we know this, and we need to understand this. He created it. He owns it. He can do whatever he wants with it. It's a lesson I learned early on in life. The realization that God can do whatever he wants to. The realization when I was a little kid that, that God could just wipe me out if he wanted to. Right? In him all things hold together and consist. If he stops holding all things together, we cease to exist. No more existence. Dissipate. And as a little kid, the realization that, that God can just end me right now, right? If he so wanted to, he could just end me. But I know that that's not his character. He's made promises. I belong to him. He won't do that because he says he won't, right? But I need to know that he can. And I need to know that he can do whatever he wants with my life. <laughs> my cousin, she was reading, his wife was reading through Romans 12, right? Offering up your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And so she was praying. She says, Lord, I surrender my life completely. Do whatever you want with my life. I will go anywhere you want me to go. Just don't send me to Africa. <laughs> Guess where he sent her. For years they ministered to nomadic people. Closest town, two days away by vehicle. Be careful. <laughs> Those exception clauses with God. Verse 12, whenever we never know when our plans will be thwarted. Events happen all of a sudden. Fish are caught in a net, right? Birds and so on. Who knows when trouble will arrive on the scene and wreck all of our great plans? How often does this happen? <laughs> when they least expect it, like a fish, Solomon says in verse 12, like a fish caught in a net or a bird caught in a trap, these things come upon us, they befall us, these evil times, horrible, horrible times. And yet, God's in control of those times. 
So do I call into question his goodness? Do I call into question, as Wesley remind us, do I, do I call into question his righteousness in these things? This is why we need to remember the admonition that comes from James, and it's from Proverbs 27.1, so Solomon's own writing. And this is where James gets it from. James says this, Come now who say, Today or tomorrow we will go and do such and such, go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet do, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Make all of our plans for tomorrow. We look at the calendar and we are assuming that everything is going to happen just like we planned. But don't be like me, because then I just said, forget the calendar, and I don't need a watch on, and we'll just roll through life. No, it's all right to make your plans, but just know whose calendar really rules. Facing folly, he's going to give us an example, and I'll leave this for you to meditate on. We'll come back and pick this up because he's going to lead us into chapter 10. And I'll leave some thoughts for you in your notes to reflect on. But he's going to pick up the principle, and he's going to carry it out to this illustration at the end of chapter 9. But he lays on us some amazing thoughts. And verse 18 is a stunner. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Pray that the Lord will give you wisdom as you live your life, right? Because as we have seen, our parents, Adam and Eve, everything was declared very good. <laughs> At one time... They didn't obey God, and now look at us. Now look at us. But what about our life and the decisions that we make? And the lack of wisdom at times I use in my life, yes? May God help us. Robert, would you close in prayer, brother?